out with the cat, out with the dog. Keep the spouse. The benefits are much better. We have, we have looked at love as it's, de- if it's, as it's defined on our, our, our little, well, and sometimes big screens in our houses. If you think about how it's defined on TV, when I was a kid, love had a, a wholesomeness on TV. Do, do you remember that? How many of you remember that, that uh, Desi and Lucy slept in different beds? Yeah, see, you're old like me too. Or, or probably you saw it last week on a rerun because I'm sure it's still on rerun somewhere. But it, there was a wholesomeness about the whole thing. Marital love was sort of guarded, and it was protected, and it wasn't displayed all the time. And now it's displayed continuously. I mean, it's displayed in advertisements. It's displayed everywhere. And we've, we've begun to describe and to devalue the interaction between a couple that's supposed to be the sole person in your life for your life. And we've begun to, to, to work away at the roots of that meaning, and we've, we've started to throw, it across, throw things out there. Um, one of the interesting things from evolutionary biologists recently about love is that love should not last more than one to four years. Yep, yep, because as an evolutionary biologist, there's no way to explain love that lasts beyond the necessity of getting that kid into a viable age. And so they say, you know, yeah, well... That's why you should expect to break up in one to four years. Because the kid's alive and they're okay and they're going to make it and then you just go find somebody else to produce another one with. It's weird, isn't it? It's a weird way to look at it. We're here just so that we can get one of those little guys to a viable age. Love has a whole bunch of mythology around it. Being that this is February, which by the way, was not, we did not miss that fact when we decided to use this title. Being that this is February, you're going to hear a lot about it. There are going to be the, you know, the ten top myths about love. It's going to be on the radio. It's going to be on TV. It's going to be on the Internet. It's going to be out there, so I thought I would give you a head start. So, um, is love a feeling or a decision? You don't have to answer in, out loud, answer in your head, just in case somebody who thinks you love them is sitting next to them and you write, it's a decision, for sure it's a decision, every day it's a decision. Is it a, is it a decision or is it a feeling? Well, it's interesting because researchers have been studying love, Anthropologist, uh, anthropolo- anthropological biologists. Helen Fisher is one of the most famous ones, and in her research she says it's both. Of course it's a feeling. You've felt the feeling, right? You know there's an emotional thing that goes on with this. There's all kinds of things. It actually attacks the same or uh, attaches itself to the same places in the brain that cocaine does. So when a person says, oh man, I'm in, I just, I'm in love and it just feels so, so exciting and there's just this elation that comes over me. Yeah, yeah, it's, a, it's a, like a drug-induced experience. Because when you feel love, they know that it sets off in your brain, the same reactions that some of the chemistry of cocaine sets off in your brain. So it is a feeling. But you know what keeps love going? What keeps the feeling alive? It's a daily decision. It's a daily decision for empathy and kindness. 
Now, I want to throw, I, I want to speak to those of you who are not married yet. Because if, if you really think about it, most of us end up in that situation at some point or another. But I want you to recognize that empathy and kindness are a benefit to your life no matter what kind of love is being expressed. If we're talking about a love for your little sister, empathy and kindness keep that alive. Especially for your little sister. Maybe a little forgiveness thrown in as well. When you're dealing with your brother, and he's just kind of a brat, empathy and kindness and some occasional forgiveness. When you're dealing with your parent or your kid, empathy and kindness and maybe a little forgiveness. You see, because the conscious acts of those people who want to stay connected require us to have empathy, which is to to feel the feelings that they're feeling, to recognize their emotions, and to be able to embrace the fact that that is true. You may not have to, you you don't have to cry all the time when they cry, but you have to recognize the sorrow in them that's producing it. Kindness is just the choice to do something nice. One of my favorite stories is about a, uh, an old grandfatherly fellow who, whose granddaughter was getting married to a young man. And as they were getting close to marriage, you know, as some young men do, uh, I think respectful and appropriate young men, we go to the fathers and the grandfathers to talk to them about taking the hand of this bride. And so this young guy comes to his this grandfather and he says, do you, do you have any advice for me in marrying Becky? He was one of those old school grandpas who didn't answer much, didn't speak much, didn't respond very much. And he didn't really have much he wanted to say in this moment. But he reached into his pocket and he pulled out his watch. It's an old, you know, pocket watch with the button that opens up the flap. And he opened it up. And he said, when I married my wife, whose name was Mary, her father gave me this watch. And it has been the secret of my marriage. He clicked on that opening and he turned the watch so that the boy could read the inscription. Inscribed on the inside of the watch was this simple phrase. Say something nice to Mary. So every time he opened his watch, there was this reminder. Just say something nice. Do you know what kind of a world we live in if if we just chose moment by moment, day by day, to say something nice to the person nearest to us, to the person we're interacting with, to, to express kindness and empathy with people around us. I've been I've been practicing a little bit of an experiment on myself lately. Anybody else experiment on themselves? I noticed that I was gritting my teeth a lot. This is my de- one of the ways I deal with stress. It's just, I clinch. I, I usually don't notice it while I'm doing it. I notice it when I stop because my teeth hurt. 
I'll find myself waking up in the morning that way. I'll find myself in the middle of the day, just all of a sudden I realize I'm just clinching my jaw. And I decided about, oh, it was probably two weeks ago, to see if I could break this. So whenever I find myself in that clinched position, I try to force a smile onto my mug. It's not a big smile, because a big file, a big fake smile, I think, just would make me clinch more. So I just put my lips together, turn in a little smile. What's surprising to me is the impact it has on me. It's surprising to me how much it relieves stress and how much it changes my attitude. About three weeks ago, when I was getting ready to preach, I was sitting over there somewhere. And I just forced myself to smile before I got up there and talked to you. And I had a lot more fun with what I was doing. Because the stresses of life are normal and and come to all of us, but we can make choices about what we do with those pressures and those stresses. So as we begin to talk about this this month, I want to remind you that Your spousal relationship, your relationship with your kid, your relationship with your parents is not your first place relationship. It is not your first place relationship. You can love your kid immensely. You can love your wife or your husband immensely. You can love your parents immensely, but they don't get first place. God gets first place. And in reality, when God has first place, the rest of those do better. Because you're under the influence of God and under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And, and those fruits of the spirits love, joy, gentleness, kindness, patience, self-control, those are very good for your marriage. They're very good for your relationships. They're very good for your kids. When the parents are loved, loving and joyful and kind, it helps your entire family. Relationship number one is the relationship with God. And I will argue today that the definition of love is not the definition that Madison Avenue puts on it. It's not the definition from your television. It's not the definition from your great Uncle Uncle John. It is the definition from Scripture. That the best definitions of love are the definitions in Scripture. And they are the clearest and the most difficult. So briefly today. The Bible says this is love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us. Can we just stop there for a second? Anybody have a mouse for a pet? Raise your hand if you ever had a rat or a mouse. Okay, I've seen a couple of you. Raise your hand if you ever had a guinea pig. That's just a better looking rat. It's true, it's bigger, it eats more, and it has a better, better coat. But it's still just a rat. Did you love your rat? Did you love your guinea pig? <laughs> Cat did, is that what you said? Uh, <laughs> that was a good guinea pig. Here's what's interesting to me about this statement. Is that we have about as much in common with the heart and mind of God as that guinea pig has with you. 
And the Bible says, you want to see what love really is? You want to, you want to see how amazing love really is? You know what's crazy? Crazy love is that God chose to love us. And then it goes on to the next step and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. Sent his son to equal out the balances for our sins, to equal out the debt that we owed, to pay off what we had put in debt. That's love. This kind of love is immensely self-sacrificial. This is not the love that you see on the typical TV show. In the 22 minutes that it takes to resolve some problem in a marriage on TV, this is not what is displayed. But it's self-sacrificial at its core. And so the Bible says that love is self-sacrificial, right? And then this, this statement from John. Now this takes a little setup. The Apostle John is the last, uh, last one still alive. All the other disciples and apostles have suffered, mostly martyrdom. He's been, they've attempted to kill him. He's actually been uh, uh, thrown into a boiling vat of oil. So think, um, think giant, you know, fryer full of oil. And they lowered him down into it. And nothing happened. They sent him off to Patmos in the hopes that he'd die out there by, of exposure on the islands. This is not an uncommon thing, by the way, for the Romans. Romans regularly exiled their family members that they were trying to get rid of onto islands where they would hope they would get sick and die. And so he was sent out to Patmos. And the purpose of sending him out there was, well, the oil didn't kill him. We'll just send him out there and let nature take care of him. If God could, could take care of him in a boiling vat of oil, what, what is going to happen on an island? Well, he's going to write the book of Revelation. That's going to happen on the island. But this guy decides to start really talking to us about love. In his book, the book of John, and in these books, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he brings it up again and again and again. When there's nothing left to be said about Christianity, there's no more biography to be written, there's no more information to be carried forward, John decides that the common thing that we all need to understand is that love is what's important. And so he makes this very broad, bold, strong statement. He who does not love does not know God. Do statements like this scare you? These scare me because I'm not always very loving. Freeway. I do need to get a sticker. I need to get four of them so that I can behave myself. Maybe I'll smile more at people. He who does not love does not know God. For God is love. Now, sometimes we we're, we talk about love, and everybody says, "Oh, okay, this is kind of good. We're going to be kind of brushing up on my marital thing, and that's great." But we're talking about core Christian principle number one. When John has finished telling us all the biographical stuff, he gets down to what is the most most important, certain thing that you can base your life on and know that you're following God. He said, if you can learn to love, you can know you're following God. If you have any questions about your relationship with God, if you're loving your neighbor, if you're really loving, you know you're loving, you know you're like God. Because God is love. So you know, put that one in your foundational principles, the roots of what you're thinking. In the roots of Christianity, the text says, God is love. 
So if God is love and Jesus is God, what does that make Jesus? Then Jesus is an expression of love, right? And it's interesting because that means every time you've seen a true expression of love towards someone, you've seen a little bit of the character of God. We, are, we love these stories. You know the story. It's the story of a little kid in, in New York City. They're going by a baseball game between some other kids that are playing. This kid is handicapped. He's never been able to play. These kids who are playing baseball out there, just, you know, a pickup game of baseball, see this other kid. The kid asks if he can play. The father thinks, don't ask because the disappointment's going to be too hard. But the kids on the field say, sure, come and play. And they let him play. They get him a glove. They get him out there. They throw the ball to him. He misses it again and again and again. But he's playing. They get him up to bat. He's terrible. But he's playing. The game is being played back and forth. You know how these pickup baseball games are. The scores vary wildly. And you're coming down to the end of the game. And they have the, the, the team that he is on has put him in the batting order. And the game's on the line. And this is legitimately, as the father, tell, father tells the story, there are a couple of kids on base. They're one run down. And he's up. Two outs. No one asked how many outs. Two of them. If you're not a baseball person, three outs and you're done. And the father thinks, oh no. Oh no, don't. Don't make this happen now. Don't take him out. Don't leave him in. Don't let him be the reason they lose. And don't take him out and embarrass him because you know he's not good. So with the game on the line, think fields full of nine, ten-year-olds. Now, if you're nine or ten, I don't mean to say anything bad about you, but you're not known for your great selfless love. They let him come up. They don't take him out of the order. They don't say enough of this. One of them go get in in line. They, They let him come up. And the pitcher, rather than saying, we've got this, game's over, I'm just going to strike him out and we'll be done. Pitcher comes up close. So he's, so he's close enough for the ball to be thrown lightly and easily. He tosses the ball gently up. He wildly swings and misses. Someone comes out of the batter's box and adjusts a little bit, helps him figure out how to swing. The pitcher, now rooting for him, Okay, watch the ball, buddy. Takes the ball in his hand. Pitches it gently up. And he swings wildly and misses again. Two strikes, two outs. This is it. Uh, if you've read this story, it's, at this point, you're, you're just, your heart's in your throat. Finally, the pitcher... 
the other batters, the other, the other kids, both teams are rooting for him. You can do this. The ball is lobbed up one last time, and he hits a little squibbler down the line. Pitcher runs over and grabs the ball as someone's instructing him as to what to do now after you've hit the ball. One of the kids runs down the base with him toward first base. And the pitcher throws the ball way over the first baseman's head. Complete and total accident, I'm sure. And the kid who's run to first base with, base with him turns him says, run over there. And he heads off for second base. The other team has to stop him at second base where the ball has now been thrown into left field. And they turn him and they tell him to run. And he runs for third base. He gets to third. You know what's happening now, right? The other two kids have scored. The whole team is emptied out of the dugout. The base coach turns him and tells him to run home. And he heads for home. Now remember the story is written from the father's perspective. The father is telling the story of what happened that day. He runs home. He steps on the plate. And the celebration ensues. Kids from both run to him, congratulating him, encouraging him, celebrating him. And there's his father in the stands, just bawling his eyes out. The story got republished multiple times. Because we recognize it when we see it. And it touches us in ways that other things don't. When we see compassion like that, when we see a bunch of little boys in a in a competitive baseball setting, pretty much in any competitive setting, put aside their interest for the interest of someone else. And bless this other kid. We recognize that kind of self-sacrificial love to be the expression of God and who God is. We see it. We understand it. We get it. The father finishes the story. But a few months later, the disease that he had ended his life. But the father says, one of the last memories I have is that group of boys blessing my son. That's what church is supposed to be. That's what you and I get to be in the world. Little glimpses of God. Little pictures of who God is. At the end of Jesus' life, 
when he turns to his disciples and tries to sum up what it means to be his follower, he says, a new commandment I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. And his next line is, by this, the whole world will know that you are my disciples. So as we talk about debunking love and the misrepresentations of it in this messed up world where we live, the example that we're called to is Jesus. The challenge in front of us is how to walk like that. And yet you've seen it. You know what it is. And the point of it simply is to show the kind of compassion and the kind of grace and the kind of kindness that Jesus showed. It's the runner at the Olympics who gets hurt who finds a group of other runners holding her up so that she can finish the race. It's the person who happens to pass by a house that's on fire and goes inside at the risk of their own life to help someone else get out. It's the early church who wins the heart of the people of Rome because during the plagues that overcame that city, the Christians were the ones caring for the sick and some dying because of their care. It's the people during the Middle Ages when those same plagues rolled through village after village after village who at the risk of themselves cared for the needs of the people around them. We've lost something in our modern world. We've hired out compassion. We've hired people to do the work of compassion. We've given it to the government and we've taken it from the church. We don't have very many volunteer fire departments anymore. We pay for professionals. And I don't know it's good that they have training, but we lost something. We lost the image of a person willing to risk theirs for yours. Because something in us says, well, he has to be here, he's paid to be here. She has to do that, she's paid to do that. 
You know what those apostles did? They spent the rest of their lives trying to be like Jesus. They went around the world seeking out people that they might be able to help. They literally sought people all over the world, from one end of the globe as far as they knew it to the other. They went. We find in discoveries and archaeology that they had got as far as Britain in the north, Ethiopia in the south, India in the east, and Spain in the west. About as far as they could go. Why? Why risk all that? Why suffer all of that? Well, as I have loved you. It's become an international symbol. It's, it's on the front of your bulletin. Christianity made a weapon of human depravity symbol of the love of God. No one wanted to be crucified. It was miserable. It was painful. It was an awful way to die. But once Jesus had been on the cross, it became a symbol of willing sacrifice Rooted in love. It's a weird thing. There's another one up there, and they're all over the Christian world. That, my friends, is love debunked. Let's pray. we are grateful for your sacrifice. Help us to be faithful in loving our neighbor as you have loved us. Help us to be selfless and self-sacrificing in the way we care about our family, our kids, our spouse, our, our parents. Help us to discover what it means to be disinterested and still caring and benevolent. Help us to follow the example of Jesus on this planet. To love our neighbor as we have been loved. We recognize it's impossible on our own. We need the covering of your grace when we fail, the infilling of your spirit, and we need encouragement and courage.
But I pray that all of us would be recognized because we loved our neighbor. I pray that we would make a difference in our neighborhood because we loved our neighbors. That we would make a difference in our town because we loved our neighbors. That we'd make a difference in this messed up little old world. This little blue speck in the Milky Way. Because we follow Jesus' example. And we love. In your name we pray. Amen.